It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. We're really glad you guys are here. <laughs> Very excited to be doing the podcast today. This is podcast number 4,573. I just and- made that number up. And we discuss all things value and Buffett investing related, correct? Well, we used to be like, I was used to be teaching you five years ago how to do this. Oh, you're still teaching me. Such an expert and are doing very well (laughs) with your investing. It's really exciting. And I think it's fantastic. And so, yeah, the the podcast has sort of rolled along, you know, it's, uh, it is, it is about all things value investing in the sense or Really, anything we think is useful to you guys. Basically, and, uh, anything we think is interesting about investing, which I yeah, feel like is a pretty good standard. There's a lot there. I mean, I've started talking about transcendence and talking about, you know, like the kind of meditation I do and long distance running. And it's like, yeah, what? Because it I matters. Mean, yeah. Because it, it matters. Really and I just have to say, again, we're having some sound issues, thanks again to AirPods not working with GarageBand, which is incredibly annoying. So um, hopefully next time we'll have a bit better sound, but thanks for bearing with us on that one. Yeah, sorry. I am traveling. I'm right now in Austin, Texas, having just watched the F1 races this weekend. If you're a Verstappen oh, so fan, cool. you're for Verstappen. Verstappen. I knew how to say that. I just said it wrong just to see if you knew. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's these little subtle Verstappen. mind games that make you an effective father. <laughs> if you're a Hamilton fan, uh, he was fabulous as always. He's such a god. <laughs> he was. Driving, he really is. This is the greatest F1 season. It just is so much fun. It's so close. It's we were sitting with a bunch fast. of, uh, we were sitting on turn 12, which is at the end of the great big straightaway. If you're an F1 fan, you know what I'm talking about into this really sharp turn where a lot of action is. And um, every time Ricard, it's Ricardo, right? The Australian yes, it guy? is. Yes. yes. My Who's favorite. In the sort of yellowish orange. He's in a McLaren. Yeah. McLaren. <laughs> there it is. And every time you you're a by, new fan, so it's all right. I'm just learning from watching the F1 Netflix series. Every time he'd come by, this whole group would stand up and scream. And this guy had a cowbells. <laughs> cowbell. He would cowbell. Every lap? Pretty close. Yeah. Until about about into the 40th lap, he sort of tired. Yeah, that's of, not annoying. Yeah. Jeez. It was, no. it was great. So we won't get into all that, except that, by the way, if you want to be a Formula One driver, investing is a good idea. You're going to need, or or a Formula One owner, it would be good to be very good at investing. Well, you can um, also literally own Formula One because Liberty Media owns Formula One now. Liberty Media is an amazing company out of Denver, Colorado, has done, it's an, a media conglomerate that's done amazing things over the last 30 years or so. So that's and John Malone. John Malone, exactly. Who's, who's now kind of retired-ish, so it's going to be interesting to see 
what happens with that company, but they bought Formula One fairly recently and have really shaken it up already. I mean, they're the ones that started because they're a media company. So they focused on really rolling it out to the U.S., which is such an incredibly huge, I don't want to say untapped exactly because they tried to tap it and it just didn't work. So Liberty's now trying to get Americans into Formula One. And it's well, they working pretty finally. Good yesterday, it's working. Sunday, the Netflix had... show was a stroke of genius, and yeah. people are getting into it. Yeah. And um, it's just, it's really enjoyable as somebody who had no clue what Formula One even was until I started dating a European and he taught it to me. I had then got, became like completely obsessed, huge fan, and still nobody else even knew what it was, anybody I knew. And so it's been really enjoyable to have like you and other people in my life suddenly be texting me like, Verstappen won, what the heck? It's pretty great. (laughs) It's pretty great. Why do you like Ricardo again? What's his story? (laughs) (laughs) Next weekend, I'm out here with two cars to drive the track. We're going to, we're preparing to race here at at, uh, Circuit of the Americas, Coda, which is where the F1 race was this weekend. The reason we came out early was just to see the race and then set up our cars and get ready to drive. So uh, fun. So it's quite fun. And in December we're racing here. So it's going to be really good, but you made a really good point about Liberty, which is one of many, many John Malone Liberty companies that have a wide range of media type involvement. And I think they own the Atlanta Braves are going to the, uh, going to the world series here. So things are rolling their way pretty good right now. And they had the largest uh, attendance at any F1 event ever uh, on Sunday. Massively huge attendance. In the U.S.? No, ever. Ever? Ever. More than the the biggest one that ever happened in England. So, Well, at least that's that's what's being spread around the United States right now. All right. um, I'll go with that. It was massively packed. That's insane. Yeah, I know. So here's here's but here's the, the investing part of this is that I've always wanted to buy into John Malone, right? I mean, if you do venture capital, which I did long when you were a little squirt, you you sort of bet the jockey. That's that's right. the huge difference between venture capital and what we're teaching you guys. And you know venture capital because you're an attorney and you've done a ton of venture capital stuff. Um, so it's a different ball game, really, is a different ball game. But Malone is such an attractive jockey to bet. I mean, he's had a lifetime of success and he is the kind of CEO who builds the company and to the, for the purpose of adding more and more value to shareholders. And one of the ways he does that is to split off companies. So, you know, Liberty started as one and then became two and now it's a huge number of different public companies. <clears throat> and those companies, you 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 get the benefit of those splits. We've never really talked much about about um, uh, companies. Sort of, what would you call it? The clone. What's the right word for it when they split off a company? It's I think you're talking a about a spinoff. A spinoff, yes, um, of course, exactly. What Liberty's done, and they may have spun off some companies. I'm not sure, but what Liberty's done is actually a little bit different. They are still one company legally but they have put up different parts of the company into different shareholding forms. So it's 
it's a very confusing structure. And I can't think of any other company I know, I'm sure there are some out there, but I can't think of any other major company that I know that has put out a public shareholding structure the way Liberty has. That's because a really good point. It's quite it actually really difficult, and I've tried a little bit. It's quite difficult to determine what you actually own with the various Liberty shares that you can buy. Um, and they change it regularly, actually, inside the company. They'll move something from like Liberty A to Liberty B. And shareholders really have no um, choice about that. So it's an interesting structure that they've put together. Uh, well, but it's even, all even, it's all legally under one company, which is literal, which is Liberty. And then even more difficult is that what made it very hard for me to invest with with John Malone is that he loves debt. <laughs> and we've yeah. just never gotten comfortable yeah. <clears throat> with the debt loads that these yeah. guys put on these companies to acquire yeah. media. And so I've always stayed away from them, but I've watched it's, them just make shareholders millions of dollars. Absolutely. The uh, they're just great at running companies. And yeah. um, and so when Formula One, this is what's so great about like life and investing. I think this is a perfect example. Like here's a company, well, Formula One, whatever. You don't even know how it's structured. I just liked watching the races. I just liked hoping that Danny Ricardo was going to win every single time they had a race. And then suddenly it occurred to me, who owns Formula One? So with anything like that, that's interesting. It's just fun to go find, I don't know, I love it. Like to go find out and be a nerd. Like who owns this thing? How is it run? How is it structured? What's the deal here? Is it like owned by some giant multi-conglomerate that I would have never expected? Or is it like some private company owned by some dude? Like who knows? And so Formula One, it turns out, has had this crazy corporate history um, of the Eccleston years and really was invented out of nothing by Bernie Eccleston. And then he sold it to this giant media conglomerate a couple of years ago. And so it's really been as a company in this transition phase of like, how's this new ownership going to work out? Nobody really knew. It had been under Eccleston for so long that it's it was really really a big big transition, and um, and it's only been a few years. And then they had the pandemic to deal with, and as you just pointed out, a massive amount of debt, which I'm not going to say the details because I'll get them wrong. But there was um, there were some debt clauses that if they couldn't make certain payments and if those the inability to not make those payments was due to not having enough races, which is a clause that nobody ever thought would really be real. But in the land of uh, lockdowns and no travel became very, very potentially real. It's possible that Liberty could have had very a very big, big payment and debt problem on its hands. However, they were able to pull off and just barely I want to say it was 16 races that they had to do and they pulled off the number whether it was 16 17 something like that just barely (laughs) so I wonder how many people knew how close they were on that one but they did it that's the thing it's a lot of times when you're involved in companies 
at early stages. I think I got a really good education from being involved in companies in early stages and <clears throat> that a lot of the time you're just walking this fine tightrope. And, and it's, uh, I think a lot of times companies get to the other end of it and they're just like, it was a miracle. And they're never going to tell you that because they're going public and they want you to all say, oh, you know, you're so solid. Um, but it was a miracle. And if you ever want to read a great book, we've had Jim McElvey on the, on the, as the mm. podcast, but go read Innovation Stack because it is an absolute tour. I think it's a tour de force entrepreneur book. I think if you're an entrepreneur and you haven't read an, uh, Innovation Stack, you don't know what you're getting into and you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you should do. But go read it because it's what you should do and it's how the real world works. And if you build a company based on the principles that Jim outlines in this book, you'll, you'll, if you succeed, you will have a company that be very difficult to compete against, mm. which it's is a, what he yeah. did with Stack. With I Square. Mean, uh, Square, rather. And it is such a good book because he points out every step of the way you've got the company at risk. And I just remember, you know, you've got this problem you solve in order to not have the company fail. And then what happens is you get to the next level and you have a problem to solve. And if you don't solve it, the company will fail. And then you do that. It's just over and over again. Yeah. These life or death problems that you have to solve. And, Which and is, by the way, why so many startups fail. Like, right. <laughs> like you hear the success stories, the ones that survived, but it is so rare to be in that company that's the one that survived. And yeah. it takes incredible leadership like Jim McElvey. And perseverance. I mean, and the, perseverance. the willingness to just bleed everything you've got into it. Yeah. Um, I almost used to think back when we were doing this stuff early on that it was a requirement by God that every entrepreneur put every single penny they could borrow, beg, earn, every penny they would have would go into their company before they finally turned the corner and were successful. And I, honestly, it just, Jim put it together better. It's like, not only is it every penny you've got, but you're gonna, you're gonna have to solve these problems and to get there. It's not just gonna happen because you've got the money in it. So yeah, I don't know, fabulous. So I'm just thinking about Formula One, right? All the, the hurdles that they've had to overcome and how you would look at that as an investor, right? Like. Right off the bat, the first the first thing I look at when I'm looking at anything new is I just think, is this simple and predictable? Hmm. Do I know with a high Wait, degree of certainty? Is that first on the checklist, Dad? I'm well, gonna go back and look. More, no, not really. Not really. This is my pre-check checklist. Oh, there's a pre-check check inside <laughs> your head. Inside my head, it's like you have to have a way of just scoping out a company to see if it's worth going through the many, many, many dozens of hours it takes to get through the entire checklist. So That's for me, true. I really like um, Bill Ackman's eight steps. And I'm, I don't, I'm, I don't know that they're all eight of them right in the top of my head, but the, and, and Bill, Bill, when he was talking about this, and you can look this up on YouTube, uh, Bill Ackman talking about the, the eight steps. You're obsessed with this. The eight it's just steps. such a good preliminary look. Yeah, it is. It's such a good preliminary look. And it's the reason Bill came back to it. It's just like, oh yeah, we were sort of skipping over our preliminary look and getting right into the meat and potatoes and digging in deep. And we got all this time involved and you get confirmation bias rolling and pretty soon you own this thing. 
and you get screwed because you didn't follow the first thing you should have followed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Which you is, could have eliminated it straight off the bat. Right off the bat. Yeah. Because it's not simple or predictable. Yeah. It's not. Okay. So F1. Well, relatively simple. I will, I will point out that your checklist, the first one in the understanding section is I can describe how the business makes money in a simple sentence. There we go. Which is another way of, to me, saying simple. simple and predictable. Fair enough. Well, good. We've got it in there. There you go. It's in there. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the tough, and I will tell you, just because of hubris, which we all share, um, that particularly if you've done well, honest to God, especially if you've done well so far in your life, you have a tendency to think you can do it all. And that I'm certainly able to make a decision about this company and I can figure it out. So my first thought about Formula One is sure, it's simple. And they're going around a track. They go around in a circle, you know. <laughs> Maybe that's not the business, right? Right, that's so, the thing. I think what is any business, business like? you can boil down to one sentence, but that doesn't mean that the business is simple yeah. or predictable. I mean, like it, you love saying like, I can understand burritos, but you know, that doesn't mean that the business behind the burritos is simple or predictable. Well, to be clear, I'm not trying to understand it well enough to actually run the business myself, right? No. It's, it's a fine, but, it, it's not even a fine line. It's sort of a big gap between, oh, I could run this day to day versus I understand the basics of how these guys make money. Totally. Right. But it could be some kind of crazy complicated structure of what's going on behind there. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, just like, be. just like in formula one, it's like, yeah, I can say, yeah, I get it. These cars come out, there are teams and they race done. <laughs> And they make but, no money doing that. And they some them. right, they somehow right. make money. Um so then yeah, then that's that's where it starts getting complicated. So yeah, how does Formula One actually make any money? And you start to think without knowing anything about it, well, let's see, they have people show up who pay money for the tickets. Um, of course they have to rent the track. Well, that doesn't so actually go to Formula there. One. There you go. They've got TV contracts, no doubt because you could watch Formula One on TV, but I don't know how many people do. I, I mean, maybe millions, maybe billions watch it. I don't know. I, in other words, very quickly, I can get to where, oh, I don't really know anything about how this business makes money. So I'd have to learn. That's the first yeah. thing. Yeah. Maybe not that hard to learn. I would say, I would right off the top of my head think, yeah, it's probably pretty learnable. And I'll go over to Google Formula One and read the wiki page. And just see if I can get a grip on, well, okay, what, what is it exactly? And there you go, right off the bat. FOPA receives 49% of TV revenues, 1% goes to the team, 50% to the FIA. So, you know, you start to get an idea of what who's Bernie Ecclestone and what did he do and kind of the history of the thing. So that's pretty simple. You read that in 10 minutes and you get an idea. Oh, is this something I can understand? But then I want to roll directly to the second piece of that first major checkbox of Ackman's, which is predictability. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Where will this be in 10 years? How comfortable am I <clears throat> that this business will be around in 10 years? That's, that's such a huge question for me. And it, it eliminates a lot of potentially good companies for me. For me, for Formula One, that is the world's easiest question. It's going to be uh, around in 10 years and it's going to be bigger. There's the no business, question in my mind. The business itself. The business the itself, own. that's a more complicated question. That's like saying Major League Baseball will be around, but well, what about who's going to own it at that point? Or Yeah. No, that's know? exactly. Because then you go and try to figure out like which things to actually buy and it suddenly gets a lot more complicated. Yeah. And so part of whether or not I feel I can comfortably predict the future for Formula One, not, not even predict it in any kind of way other than it's going to be bigger, and more successful, the business of Formula One, is <clears throat> I'm going to read up on how it got to where it is now. And if it has been rife with problems and scary moments and it just barely survived and all of these things that we were just talking about for an entrepreneurial company, <clears throat> then either something radically changed and they've gone over the hump and now they're going down the, the downhill side of things or their past will predict their future. And I don't know what the answer would be on F1. I honestly don't. I, I think the past has been really up and down. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just reading this financial difficulties and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Rescuing them and this one, then this one. But maybe because this huge media company got a hold of these guys and they've got a clue on how to use media for something that at least in Europe is fabulously um, popular. Maybe they can figure it out. I don't know. What do you think? You, think you could say comfortably without a lot of effort that this is pretty predictably going to be a bigger company, more successful down the road. I feel very comfortable saying that. Yeah. I'm convinced of that. I think um, uh, it's a sport in a rather unusual position where it's not gotten into the world's largest market for sports, which is the U.S. And they have only in a couple of years already been accomplishing that task in an extraordinary success. Um, it's only going to grow and they are going to professionalize. They're already professionalizing the operation. A big reason that it went through a lot of those difficulties, shall we say, is that it was a extremely unprofessional operation. And it was like a bunch of people who knew each other who decided to put this thing together. Um, so now they have like genuine structure, from what I understand. They're trying to make it so that certain teams have less power than they've historically had. From what I understand, Ferrari has had way too much power. I don't really understand why, but somehow because they were there since the beginning, Ferrari has... Uh, been able to really control a lot of the decisions around the teams. So 
they're trying to dial that back without losing Ferrari and at the same time bring up the possibility of more teams that have less money is a big problem is the money gap between the teams. So they're trying to make it to be a better show. Again, they're a media company. They're trying to make a better show. They're trying to make the cars more competitive with each other. That means having them be closer together, be able to overtake. I mean, we've gone through a few years of cars not even hardly overtaking each other, which is completely ridiculous in a race that you want to watch and enjoy. So they're focused on the entertainment. And I think that that is working unbelievably well. But you're, My, <clears throat> you're jumping all around th- this other issue, which is what are they, what, are, where are they going to be? I mean, how predictable? I got it that they're popular, but for example, just in the wiki page, they're the commercial rights of Formula One are not controlled by the Formula One group. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm saying. Is it gets really complicated about what you actually own? Yeah, and Crazy. I am not. I don't have my notes here, so I can't say exactly, you know, what's what. What I remember from when I researched this like two years ago or so is, uh, or less than that, because it was when the pandemic started, was that it became very quickly incredibly complicated and dealing with who owns which piece of what and who owes debt to who and at what point does do these rights kick in and at what point does this debt obligation kick in and what are the rights of the FIA which is this um, governing body of the sport which is not the same as Formula One media and yet also owns quite a lot of rights and financial obligations and it's it's incredibly confusing it's so hard. i mean there's something called the formula one world championship limited fowc that got the rights to formula one for a hundred years from the fia okay and they control this is just from wikipedia <clears throat> yeah this is all okay. i'm getting from wikipedia okay they're fowc is the commercial rights holder and it negotiates contracts organizing television broadcasts and receiving license fees for the use of Formula One material, except that Formula One licensing is a Dutch company owned by the Formula One group, which is the company we would own if we bought the stock. Yeah. And they own the F1 logo and Formula yeah, One. Yeah, I think that's just a, a structuring situation. I don't think Oh, it is that. just a structure. And you're a lawyer and it's like, I don't want to have to get a law degree to figure this stuff out. Uh, well, I don't. Really I have a law degree, and I don't mind figuring it out. But, but that stuff, I think, that stuff that is is owned by Formula One Media. But the the oh, real um, simple. Okay. the real fault line is between the FIA and Formula One Media, and who has rights to what, and who has power over what, and then the other issue so let's say we agree like or we don't have to agree i think it's simple enough and it's predictable that it's going to be bigger and more successful in 10 years but dear lord what's well that just goes to show that your investment in a law degree and law practice have paid off because okay but i haven't finished i'm looking at this thing and just going then there's the second part which is they have a massive amount of debt, which yeah. Formula One 
sorry, which Liberty used to purchase Formula One. And that's the crux of it. Like, I can think that the entertainment is fantastic and Liberty is amazing at media and has an incredible chance at really growing this thing even bigger than it's been across the entire world, which I do think they will do. Um, But what does that mean for the financial status of the company when it runs into problems when they have all this debt? And I am not confident about that part of it. So I think for me, that's where it breaks down. Yeah, I think that's very wise. So to continue the process of kind of digging into this just real quickly, um, just hearing from Danielle that the debt is a problem, which by the way, if you looked at the finances of the company, you would see right away they've got this mountain of debt. Then I'm just going to Google debt, Formula One, right? Liberty. And what will come up is a Forbes article done in March of 2020 saying F1's $2.9 billion of debt mountain could hold the keys to its future. Um, And I'm going to read this article and it's going to be probably give me a pretty good idea roughly of what's going on out there. Um, And they wrote this in particular because the share price went down almost 50% at that point in time when they were publishing the article due to coronavirus. Well, I'll tell you exactly why it went down 50%. It was because of this clause of minimum races having to be held within a sporting year. This is the crux. Could they, if they did not reach the minimum races, which I want to say was 16, they had a massive problem to the point of possibly losing the business. Like this was a ride or die situation. And nobody in a million years thought that there would be a situation in which you could not hold this many races. I mean, they typically hold 20, 21. I think they're doing, what is it? Everyone's fighting over it, but like 24 races this year or next year. So 16 is, should be doable, should not be an issue. And then here we are in this unprecedented travel and country borders being closed situation across now okay let's say that happens in like north america okay so we just hold all the races in asia and europe fine no problem formula one's everywhere no this is a worldwide unpress unthought of situation it'll i hope knock on wood never happen again and um and the fact that they may not have been able to hold those 16 races was very very real so that's why the stock price dropped so much and by hook or by crook, they, they pulled it out. Like pu- that was pure, excellent management last year. Unbelievable logistical management. Hundreds of people having to travel between countries. They had to get waivers from governments to be able to hold some of those races and bring all of those people into the country. They had to set up their own COVID testing regime so that the countries would be okay with this giant group of people coming in and so that they didn't create their own super spreader event. They did these races without any spectators, which means that the places, the the tracks where they held the races had no income for the races. So there was no reason for them to be incentivized to hold the races at all. It just cost them money. So Formula One had to work that out with the local track owners and mostly governments that were paying subsidies for it. And uh, 
I mean, it's just, it's like magical that they did an incredible feat of management. Absolutely extraordinary. And they did it. They pulled it off. Well, <clears throat> when you dive into this stuff and start doing your research, you begin to find out as you sort of unpeel this onion that this Liberty stock, Liberty, Liberty Media that owns this thing is so complex. They don't actually complex. own any assets. They sort of own, it's almost like an index or something. They just sort of own the share of profit not just from whatever happens with Formula One here, but also they own one third of Live Nation. Yep, they own part of Live Nation. I, I speak for occasionally. <clears throat> so Live Nation, they own one third of that, which of course went right down the tubes, um, bringing, bringing this stock down with it. Yep. Uh, during Corona. They own Sirius, uh, or no, Sirius or the other one? They own 15% of the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, that's And then they got tiny shareholdings in other companies. So I don't think this one is uh, Sirius XM. So, yeah, this is a company with, what is it? But this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Their their stocks are bifurcated. So the company owns far more than than what is in one individual stock that you can buy from Liberty. So if you look on their investor web page they have some charts that that break it down <laughs> like they need charts to break down what you own based on which class of stock you buy um well looking at looking wild. at kind of what what liberty paid for this thing um is interesting too because w- when we talk about doing um an owner earnings analysis and getting to a 10 cap you know we kind of laid the basics out there in the book of how to do that. So we won't go back over that. But <clears throat> one of the things we left off of there was the impact of debt on the total amount that you're actually paying for the company. And mm-hmm. the reason I did that is because it's like debt. We just don't look at companies that have a lot of debt. So it really was sort of irrelevant. Yeah, totally. Right. But yeah. It certainly isn't irrelevant when you look at something like this Liberty Media and try to figure out what you're paying for the whole thing. So for example, um, the company had $700 million of cash in the bank, Formula One did, and $4.1 billion of loans. So if you subtract the cash from the amount of debt, you end up with $3.4 billion of debt that comes with the company, right? So if they paid $4.6 billion for the company, which is what they paid for it, and then you add in $3.4 billion more of debt that you owe, you just paid $8 billion for this thing. Does that make sense? In some, yeah, I mean, that's one yeah. way to look at it for sure. Well, that's, I mean, well, if, you, if you went and bought a house and you paid $200,000 for it, and then on top of that, you also owe another $200,000 for it, you didn't pay $200,000 for the house. You paid $400,000 for the house. I mean, I get it. <laughs> okay. I'm just I mean, sure a, lot of, a lot of people would consider that to be that you, you paid the amount that you paid and then you're carrying this debt and you never intend to pay it off. So you're not actually uh, bringing that load on to pay it off in full. I. So it's another I, way of thinking about it. I think that it would be the way a scammer would think about it, or maybe 
a crooked real estate agent, Ooh. you'd be like, um, you, you'd be like, okay, we're going to get a loan. We can get a loan for $200,000 for this house. And so the real estate agent was like, that's awesome because this house is only $200,000. <laughs> and you'd be like, well, the rest of the houses are 400,000 around the neighborhood. We're buying this for half off. That's right. You'd be like, that's right. This is awesome deal you're getting. <laughs> And yet, oh I guarantee you that our people there are people that think like that. There probably um, are. Okay, right. so let's continue next that. time. Sure. To discuss Deal. a little bit more about debt in purchasing price. Yeah, and how much did you pay, and what would you do with the ten cap if you actually put debt back in there? What would that mean? Okay. Cool. All, All right. right. We'll do that Thanks. next time. Thanks, everybody. Right, go play. Bye. See you guys. Hi guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding, they really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And I'm really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.